Uh, welcome to the second session of the day. Uh, we have with us uh, Mr. Eric. Uh, I'll introduce him briefly. Uh, he heads ESG for Manulife Asia. Uh, Eric's responsibilities include conducting proprietary research to assess the investment risks and opportunities related to the sustainability strategies of companies operating across Asia. Uh, evaluation is for the ESG exposure at the portfolio level and defining and leading an active ownership agenda for the region. Uh, prior to Eric uh, at Manulife, uh, he led the sustainable finance team for Asia Pacific at S&P Global, uh, where he helped to develop and launch their ESG evaluation framework. Uh, he worked closely with analysts across the regions uh, to evaluate ESG exposure in corporate and infrastructure uh, entities. Uh, I have been closely uh, working and learning from Eric over the last couple of years. Uh, I would say that uh, he he uh, he is involved in a lot of uh, uh, a lot of entities, uh, including uh, governments, corporates, uh, helping them on how to think uh, on the ESG. Uh, so we requested him to actually present a brief session on uh, the reflections from Asia for India. Uh, Eric, it's, it's a pleasure to have you today uh, for the conference. I'll hand over uh, the controls to you, and post your presentation, we'll have a brief uh, Q&A session over to you. Eric, thank you. Thanks for that, and really thanks to the entire Investec team also. Um, and it's, uh, yeah, it's always, always a pleasure working with you on, on this topic. Um, so I think today... Uh, I was, I was thinking that we could could look at a few a few of the developments that um, that have been been happening across Asia and the implications that they might have for for India. And I I kind of broke that into into three different different categories. So um, we're continuing to see momentum from governments and regulators, as well as banks and investors, and corporations and and NGOs, and and so across these, these different areas, it's, it's affecting policy um, as well as capital allocation and, and reporting and disclosure. So uh, we, can, we can look into those, uh, into kind of each of those and, and um, some of, the, some of the, the kind of current trends and, and what they might mean for, for the Indian market. Um, so, in with regards to the policy, the um, one of the, the the big kind of climate-related events last year was the UN's 26th conference of parties, uh, where all of all of the countries got together to discuss discuss climate policy. And coming out of that, we're seeing a lot of focus on both uh, putting a price on on carbon. So. Um, Big carbon taxes and, and trading, uh, as well as as green hydrogen plants. So, the the reason I, I chose this picture is I, I think one of the most surprising things from the conference was, you know, in some ways that it, it happened at all. Uh, you know, you can see this this picture from um, when the when the Paris Agreement was signed, and you can see. Why it was so difficult to convene this uh, in the middle of a pandemic, and why it was really really delayed for a year. Um, but it was hosted by 
you know, after a delay was hosted last year by uh, the UK and in Glasgow, and uh, they came up with this very catchy agenda of focusing on, on progress in the categories of coal, cars, cash, and trees. Um, and so in terms of, of coal, the, the conversation was really around moving entirely away from the fuel. Um, and this, this was every, every conference of parties has this kind of dramatic, dramatic moment. This was the, the topic of the, the dramatic moment at COP26, where right at the end when uh, everything was being signed, um, the, the language was questioned and it was challenged that uh, the, the language around phasing out of coal had to be, um, uh, I guess, kind of, kind of more, more lenient. And so the discussions then went to uh, phasing out unabated coal, which, which essentially unabated means that it would have left the door open for, for carbon capture. Um, and then even that was, uh, was further adjusted to, to phasing down, um, which is where the, the language ended up. But even with that, there was a, a coalition that formed at COP around um, with uh, 190 different organizations that included uh, 77 new signatories um, between the ones that had signed kind of leading up to the event and the ones that signed at COP. Uh, and of those, there were uh, 46 countries that were, were signatories to this. But, um, and those include some pretty uh, meaningful countries. So, so Poland, which has been um, maybe more of a, a, a proponent of coal in the EU, uh, Vietnam, Chile, Egypt, and Morocco. Um, but the, this, this coalition was missing uh, basically the biggest countries as signatories. So um, the 15 largest coal are kind of using and exporting countries um, and, and uh, even the countries and the organizations that did sign up, um, they often didn't put a timeline to it. So, you know, in order for it to be more credible, we would expect uh, 20 to 30, 2030 and 2040 kind of milestones or, or deadlines. Um, and, and oftentimes that, that wasn't necessarily the case. Um, so, you know, we expect to see this to, to continue to continue coming up, um, and and I think uh, you know India in terms of setting policy and Indian companies will, will and Indian investors will will continue to focus on uh, phasing out coal um, this year and and for the next few years. Um, on cars, the conversation was really around uh, banning the sale of of new. IT vehicles beyond some point. Um, that also did not get as much uh, traction as was kind of hoped, but in a similar vein, some very large auto companies did announce their own timelines for uh, reaching 100% EV car sales. Um, and so this is something that India has been fairly progressive in, in, in talking about. Um, so India has been talking 
about a 100% target for all new car sales being EV by 2030, which is, is, is pretty quick. Uh, and with that, they want to develop India into a major EV um, manufacturing and exporting uh, hub. So I, I think, you know, that's another area where uh, agreement wasn't necessarily reached, but we'll, we'll probably continue to see more, more discussion. Um, in terms of cash, the Paris Agreement originally had this um, clause that developed countries would contribute uh, a monetary contributions to helping less developed countries meet their climate goals, and there had been this target of uh, $100 billion of, of capital to be mobilized every year. And historically, uh, the developed countries have been coming in under under that, so, so kind of well below that 100 limit, with about 80 billion um, in, in 2019. And so that came up at top. Um, there was talk about increasing that that uh, funding by um, by 2025, or, or placing a higher goal for 2025. And so I think the consensus there was very much that developed countries are still on the hook and still expected to, to, to fund to fund that. Um, the and then with with trees, uh, there was this this discussion around um, increasing um, the the protection of forests and, and stopping deforestation. But it was really a um, very similar to a previous agreement that had already been made, uh, it's called the Declaration on, on, on Forests, which was, was signed in 2014. And uh, that already had the 32 largest forest nations as signatory to it, including India. Um, and India was actually the only one that had set an ambitious target for uh, increasing the forest stock. Um, you know, in the in all of the years following that that um, that agreement, and so uh, India actually chose not to sign the agreement in Glasgow um, on the link the link that was made between um, protecting forests and especially when uh, new infrastructure was being developed and and linking that commitment to trade um, and. I think it's also a miss updates that have been uh, made and proposed to the 1980 Forest Conservation Act. So India, compared to many countries, actually has quite strong legislation around um, around protecting forests, but that has has really come into question, especially in the last six months, particularly in the um, in the Hasdeo and. That's also, I think, somewhat related to the topic of coal and really getting to the coal reserves that are, are underneath that force. Um, so that's just one example, but uh, amid other amendments to the, you know, the 1980 Forest Conservation Act, which is, is pretty strong, I think um, India was, was hesitant to sign. Um, and so uh, just go to the next slide. I know there's a lot of text on this slide. I apologize for that, but um, I will uh, I'll, I'll move through it. Um, so the a few other 
you know, outside of the kind of coal, cars, cash, and trees, um, there were some other pretty important developments from from COP. One was there was a lot of discussion around international carbon carbon trading markets. Um, this has been something that's actually been negotiated for years. So Article 6 of the Paris Agreement uh, defines international carbon trading, but has not been able to reach consensus in all of the years following the signing of the Paris Agreement. And so it was, it was a big focus at COP26, and there were some agreements that, that came out of it. So it was agreed that there would be no double counting. That means that uh, a country that's producing a credit cannot, if they then sell that credit to another, um, to another country, only one country can take credit for it instead of both. So um, that that is important in terms of calculating the country's uh, contributions to mitigating climate change and the country's emissions. Um, it was also there was a, a target that was set that five percent of the proceeds from carbon trading would go towards adaptation projects. That's uh, pretty new and pretty important because. Climate change is already causing a lot of damage, and uh, there's a lot of um, spending that needs to happen, not only on mitigating climate change, but on uh, adapting to climate change and building resilience against climate change. Um, and then another contentious point was uh, there's a lot of older vintage carbon credits, and so would those still be applicable, um, you know, was, was heavily debated and they settled on uh, 2013 as kind of a cutoff for, um, for credits. Um, in terms of the, the rules of the Paris Agreement, Article 6 was a big one. There was also a topic of, of common timelines. So if countries submit their, uh, their targets, their nationally determined contributions, their NDCs, and those had... Um, they, they, they may have come on many different timelines, and so there was agreement that every five years, countries would set their targets for basically the next 10 years. So these, these kind of five-year increments to try and align all of the, the countries' uh, targets. So, you know, 2025 would set targets through 2035, um, you know, 2030 to 2040, and hopefully that will get global policy kind of more aligned. Um, so a lot of, of country commitments that, that came out uh, either leading up to the conference or, or during it. India was was probably the uh, the one that made the biggest kind of splash with the announcements in that zero by 2070. Um, but I think even more important than that is the goal to get the 50% renewables by 2030. That's that's maybe even the more kind of impactful part of of the announcement that was made. Um, China, uh, South Korea, Japan, you know, had already committed to, to carbon neutrality by mid-century, but we saw a slew of other Asian nations uh, kind of announcing the same. So Australia by 2050, even though all of the constituent states had already made that pledge kind of well before, um, but Thailand by by 2065, 
uh, Indonesia and Saudi Arabia, joined China with a timeline for 2060, Vietnam and Malaysia by 2050. Um, Vietnam also included a coal phase out by 2040. Um, and China set a new target for 1200 gigawatts uh, of new wind and solar by 2030. And uh, the scale of that is, is absolutely enormous. That is a, a massive amount of, of new um, renewable energy generation. Um, they also have the surprise announcement at the end that they would work with the U.S. on, on mitigating climate change. So I think, you know, now that all of these announcements have been made, the implication for India is probably, uh, you know, looking for more kind of international cooperation towards towards meeting those pledges together. Um, on other topics, methane was a big focus. There was another coalition that formed around reducing methane, which doesn't stay in the atmosphere as long, but it's extremely potent when it is in the atmosphere as a greenhouse gas. Um, the uh, and then, you know, going back to the, the points on finance and, and flows from developed nations to developing countries, I think that is maybe missing the bigger picture of, of global finance. So there was this uh, a financial alliance for net zero, which really brought together banking alliances for net zero, asset manager alliances for net zero, um, asset owner alliances towards net zero. Uh, that had, had come up over the past year. And so all in 400 uh, financial institutions representing $130 trillion, and there's some overlap with that in terms of um, end investors versus money managers, but um, $130 trillion, you know, huge amounts of, of the capital markets that has, has committed to this. And that, I think, has... Uh, you know, probably more potential impact than the the the, the hundred billion that was talked about. Um, and so, where does this leave us? Leave us at the end. Um, I think before the Paris Agreement was signed, the world was kind of on a track for uh, the four degrees Celsius of warming, which would, which would be absolutely catastrophic. Um, and so, the current policies put us on track to, to two and a half degrees, which is a huge improvements, but still, still really problematic. With all the pledges that came out on, you know, from the conference, there's um, some research that shows that if it's uh, executed on, then we would be at something more like 1.8 degrees. And so there was really this question around the conference of parties around would the possibility of limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees be kept alive? And the, the result was kind of yes, but, but just just barely. Um, so just diving a little bit further into the, the carbon pricing and, um, and the hydrogen policies, this uh, graphic shows all of the, the uh, carbon pricing policies that are in place around the world. Um, green shows countries that have domestic and international trading uh, the, the strike shows strike green shows only international. Um, red shows countries that are considering international carbon pricing, and um, blue is countries that only have domestic carbon pricing. But you know, overwhelmingly, you know, there's a, a, a move towards greater pricing of, of carbon emissions uh, and, and probably higher prices for 
for those um, high emitting sectors will kind of intuitively be the most most affected um, by pricing what previously has been an externality. I think it's also worth noting that oftentimes these prices are compared to the, the revenue for different industries, but many of these industries have very thin margins. So uh, cement, steel, chemicals production, electricity production, all of these are, are relatively commoditized industries that have, have pretty thin margins. And so these prices can have a very big impact on uh, profit. So, um, but while, while it can affect whole industries, that means that um, it becomes maybe, you know, more of a, a, a relative exercise. And so I think the implication of this is also that the, the sector leaders uh, will either benefit or be, be um, you know, less negatively impacted than the sector overall and, and you know, through that kind of come out favorably. Um, so this uh, is a similar graphic for, for hydrogen policies that have been put in place. So national, um, formal national strategies are shown in dark orange, informal in lighter orange, Red is just the EU policy kind of taken together, and then yellow are, are countries that are considering um, a national hydrogen strategy. The um, hydrogen is, is going to be discussed, you know, in detail in other panels at, at this event. So uh, suffice to say that it could be a key form of long-term storage for renewable energy, uh, and it could also be key to decarbonizing the really hard to abate industries. However, most of the estimates place uh, green hydrogen coming at, at parity with uh, fossil fuel produced hydrogen or, or gray, gray hydrogen um, five to 10 years away. So these, these subsidies are, are really important for, for the development of, of, you know, the, these, of hydrogen as a really long-term uh, climate solution. Um, that said, many of the companies that I've spoken to don't believe that green hydrogen actually has to reach cost parity with fossil fuel-based. Um, they think that it, it, adoption will happen even at a higher price because people will just be forced to, to decarbonize or, or uh, in meeting their own commitments, you know, will will pay pay a premium in, you know, in the interim until it becomes, until the technology improves and it becomes lower cost. Um, so thinking about how this affects India, India has a really distinct advantage here um, because India has some of the lowest cost solar in the world. And the two main costs for producing hydrogen are really the electricity that goes into the electrolyzer and then the cost of the electrolyzer. And so if you can you know, if the cost of an electrolyzer is relatively fixed, then if you pair that with India's um, really, you know, attractive solar electricity prices, especially at times that are maybe off-peak, um, then uh, the, the proposition becomes really attractive. And, and that's been recognized in, in Indian policy. So India has the National Hydrogen Mission, the, which uh, has been called the, the Quantum Leap, and um, that is part of a broader plan towards 
uh, energy independence by 2047. And I think that's also really important that um, this could, you know, satisfy domestic demand, but with so much capacity for, you know, low-cost solar, you know, on a global scale or relative to other countries, uh, part of the plan could really be for India to, to export um, green hydrogen to, to other geographies that are less, less conducive to it. Um, and and we've, we've actually seen that in other hydrogen plants from countries like Japan and Korea where they don't necessarily have the same renewable capacity, but they're trying to set up the infrastructure to, to import and receive that green hydrogen. Um, so uh, I won't go into the detail of this, but it shows a few examples of the different kind of applications. I think the variety of applications for hydrogen is important. So passenger vehicles, industrial vehicles, power generation, um, you know, various uh, um, other other kind of heavy heavy industry applications. And then I've looked at some of the, the policy examples and how they've evolved in Japan, Korea, and China as, as a reference. And I think the key thing there is how much they've accelerated from even just a couple of years ago. Um, so moving on to how this is affecting finance and, and, and capital allocation, um, many countries are creating taxonomies and increasingly uh, a variety of, of organizations are, are, are trying to come up with common definitions of what it means to be a sustainable fund. Um, so this slide shows uh, it says pension fund regulation, stewardship codes, and, and corporate disclosure guidelines or corporate reporting regulations. And so there's a lot of activity. And the key thing here is a lot of what's happened around ESG has developed kind of organically over the past few years. I, I would say it's been industry-led. And what all this activity shows is that uh, regulators are really getting involved now, and it's no longer these, these kind of voluntary initiatives. It's, it's really becoming mandatory. Um, and so I often, when, when I, I, I talk to people in companies in India, I, I often hear um, big comments around things like, ESG compliant versus non-compliant, or you know what is going to become uninvestable, and uh, that there is an aspect of that, but that I would say that's not um, the majority of what of what the market is is moving towards. So um, this comes from the an organization called the RIAA, and it looks at some of the various sustainable investing methodologies that have been developed. Um, and so the, uh, the traditional investment would be on the left and the pure kind of philanthropy, just you know, giving money towards impact would be on the right with, with you know, kind of no returns. And then you, you begin to see some of the, the uh, methodologies that have been around for a longer time. So impact investing, which is usually associated with concessionary returns for performance, um, and that's always been kind of a niche of capital markets. And negative screening 
so uh, you know, excluding sin stocks or something like that. You know, again, that's been around for a couple of decades. Also, kind of you know, niche in terms of broader capital markets. And I think what's happened is ESG integration. So trying to use environmental and social data uh, to improve investment decisions and financial returns has really taken off in you know a very kind of mainstream way throughout markets. And then um, there are are these other uh, methodologies. So maybe a more active focus on the best-in-class companies, or rather than looking at those exclusions, there's been a big move towards moving away from excluding companies or trying to say that they're non-compliant to focusing on, on trying to identify the companies that are, are better positioned um, or having maybe more of a positive impact. Uh, likewise, you could look at specific themes that, you know, long-term sustainability themes where the companies that are uh, addressing those challenges will benefit um, and and have a positive impact. And so, what we're seeing is is that these aren't necessarily distinct. That many of them can be taken in, in many of our funds. For example, we take a variety of these approaches together, trying to pick and choose you know the benefits of each. And um, and so, rather than just Excluding things or, or you know, saying that companies are uninvestable, trying to look at kind of more holistically, you know, what is what is the overall impact, uh, and, and maybe not such a dogmatic way. Um, and so, the you know maybe combining that ESG integration with a little bit of negative screening where it's appropriate, but also you know trying to take advantage of opportunities through the positive investment class. Um, so. The EU is, is regulating that. They've been the first to come up with a taxonomy that tries to really define what it means to be sustainable. Uh, they're doing that for NFRD, which is, is corporate reporting, as well as SFDR, which applies more to financial institutions uh, and their funds. And so um, there's Article 6 funds, which are, are really maybe having that ESG integration. Article 8, which is... Uh, uh, promoting environmental and social characteristics for Article 9, which is um, has a, a, a sustainable investment objective. And, and there's even a lot of interpretation, differing interpretations still on what that means. So sometimes Article 9 is called kind of an impact fund, um, and Article 8 would be maybe more of a sustainable fund where those objectives are kind of balanced. Uh, and Others are saying Article 8 could be maybe kind of strong ESG integration and Article 9 would be you know, kind of more of a balanced single fund. So this is still playing out. With that, there's also continuing controversy around what classifies this as a sustainable activity. So most recently, a lot of discussion around whether nuclear should be included as green because of the radioactive waste and whether gas can, can qualify as a transition fuel. Um, so I think, um, you know, the, the uh, you know, potential implications for, for India, depending on how that, how that plays out. Um, so lastly, on, on disclosure, um, the, 
the sustainability disclosing frameworks can be quite confusing. Um, this is where we really get into the alphabet soup of ESG with SASB, GRI, SDGs, CDSB. Um, and so that's been recognized, and the IFRS has been the body to, um, to, to try and, and bring some convergence to this. Uh, and so what you know, there's, there's different two different kind of approaches. The SASB is really focused on how environmental and social uh, issues can affect the finances of companies, whereas um, GRI or the SDGs is a more comprehensive approach that look at, at kind of impact. Um, and then the integrated reporting is basically saying that that should be disclosed with the financial information at the same time in the same place. Um, and so IFRS is trying to, to bring all of that together in the way in the same way that uh, financial accounting is relatively streamlined. So I think the takeaway for India is really that um, integrated reporting and GRI have maybe been more prevalent in the Indian market, but SASB is actually having a lot of influence on on the development of this. So uh, you know if if you haven't taken a look at SASB, you know, it's probably worth, um, you know, seeing, seeing how, how that could be followed. Um, another, another framework, so though this is, is really looking at all sustainability disclosure, uh, but there's also some kind of deeper developments that are happening on the topic of climate. So, um, the task force on climate-related financial disclosure is gaining a lot of traction, um, so much so that it's, you know, I think it, it will be essentially mandatory in the next couple of years. So some regulators are requiring it. The UNTRI backs it quite quite substantially, which has, you know, many, many asset management signatories. Um, and so... What that really looks is, is that an organization has these four uh, pillars in place. So um, that a company is disclosing their the climate um, approach, you know, across these four four categories, and it has specific recommendations that go along with those. Um, you know, the the metrics and targets is is one where. It, it gets into more detail, and that's where maybe more emissions data and scenario analysis results uh, become become um, uh, common. But the you know it's also requiring that the entire organization have a governance uh, structure in place that's, that's defining their strategy. So going even further, there's um, scrutiny of once an organization has set a target is that really at the right level? Is that really going to be aligned with the goals of the Paris Agreement? And that's where the, the science-based targets initiative, that's BCI, comes in. Um, and so there are over 2,300 companies that have either set a science-based target or committed to it, and that means that they will follow this process of committing to setting a science-based target, developing it, submitting it, um, having it evaluated, and then uh, disclosing that publicly. And you can see that this has been gaining a lot of, of uh, momentum also over the past, past few years. So the, 
the key here is really that um, the the level of ambition of the target matters, not just that a company has set a climate target. And so they have both industry and absolute um, uh, methodologies, but if I were to summarize it, it's that the science is basically telling us that we need to get to net zero uh, long term, but to do that we need to reduce emissions by half by, by 2030. And so it's, um, it, it's looking that the, the, the commitments from companies are, are basically aligned with that. Um, so with that, I'll, I'll stop and uh, take questions on any of these sections. Uh, Eric, uh, thank you so much uh, for a very insightful presentation. Uh, I'll request all the participants, if you have any questions, uh, you can please raise your hand. Uh, meanwhile, I'll, I, I have a few questions for uh, you, Eric. Uh, first of all, I'll just start from a top-down approach. I think policy and finance focus heavily on climate change in 2021. Uh, what do you expect uh, will find more prominence uh, in, in this calendar year? Uh, and if you could highlight uh, why, why do you think so? Thank you. This is the first one. Sure. Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Um, so one thing that I should have mentioned when I was talking about the, the, the trees aspect of the, um, uh, the kind of coal cars, cash, and trees from COP26 is that there there are other... Uh, UN conference parties on, on other topics. And so the big one that's coming up this year, um, and we're already seeing a lot of movement kind of towards the topic of, of biodiversity, is, you know, the biodiversity conference, which is, is going to happen in, in Kunming. Um, and again, you know, delayed because of COVID, uh, it was kind of split into two, two pieces, but the big negotiation is happening this year. Um, and so I think the, the conversation around forests at COP26 on climate is really um, kind of an antecedent to the, the broader discussion on biodiversity uh, and nature overall um, at this upcoming COP. The other reason that's important is because um, there's a big, the big agreements on biodiversity are coming to a natural kind of reset. Um, and so it's expected to set basically the, the, the biodiversity goals for the next 10 years. Um, and, and it's talked about in kind of, you know, the, the Paris Agreement for Biodiversity. So I think that'll be a big theme. I think that's, you know, on the kind of near horizon. Um, I think within climate change, we talk, we, when we talk about climate change, we almost, you know, immediately talk about about um, climate change mitigation or stopping climate change, but I think this entire concept of adaptation and resilience is uh, also just increasingly important. The two are inversely related. So the less successful we are at mitigating climate change, the more we have to adapt to it. Um, and I think that's basically been you know, almost unaddressed, uh, and, and we'll see a lot more on there. Um, I think there's also, you know, pressing issues around water scarcity and uh, a recognition that sustainability and ESG is not only about environmental issues, and so I think we'll, we'll also see probably more focus on um, on social topics. So 
within that two, you know, that are probably coming more and more often to the forefront, I would say, are, are human rights and, and diversity. That's, that's very useful. Uh, I have more questions. Uh, I'll request Priyanka uh, if you can please unmute and ask your question. Thanks. Hi, thank you. Thank you, Ed, for a very comprehensive presentation. Just wanted to understand what is the monitoring mechanism for all these targets that, let's say, countries have taken or companies are committing to, and what happens if a country or a company, let's say, misses out on its target? Is, is there a penalty provision at all? It's a, it's a good good question. Um, also, uh, I'll just say say hi hi to, to Priyanka. Uh, one of the things I really like working about this space is, is um, that it can be quite quite collaborative. And, and uh, I, I work with Priyanka on some some of the kind of industry groups. Um, so thanks. Good to good to hear from you. And thanks thanks for the question. Um, the I, I guess it varies. So. In terms of Paris, uh, some countries choose to um, put their targets into law. Uh, I think oftentimes there's there's kind of varying degrees of of you know, legal legislation that gets formed around targets or aspects of the targets. Um, but some of it is, is voluntary, so it's uh, or or maybe kind of aspirational. Um, that said. Another thing that came up at, at COP26 that we didn't talk about is uh, provisions around loss and damage. So loss and damage basically means that um, there should be some kind of monetary uh, contribution to countries that are especially affected by climate change. And this could also be very relevant for India when we talk about drought or um, coastal uh, you know, coastal assets, um, and that uh, that conversation was just beginning to happen. There were a, a few a few countries that made commitments, but um, that's one of the things that we expect will really come up, you know, this year in in, in COP27. So, so not as much a, um, a a requirement, but you know, a, a monetary incentive, I guess, kind of in some form. Um, and the other the other piece is, this is really what Article 6 in the International Carbon Trading is meant to um, to to address. So if, a, if one country, for example, surpasses their climate target, then they can sell credits to a country that's behind. Um, and that's really complicated to do in practice, which is why it's taken so long to, to negotiate this. But uh, you know, hopefully, more of the of the framework is set for that to kind of happen. And so, you know, again, it's not exactly a, a, a requirement or, or a penalty, but you know, if a country is behind and then they have to purchase credits, um, you know, it is it is another kind of monetary incentive. So, and um, what happens to frameworks like SPTI? If let's say companies commit to a target uh, on the basis of SPTI and do not meet it. Um, how does that work? Like, I'm sure that's also voluntary, so I'm assuming there will not be uh, anything other than a communication that must be going out, or maybe there will be investors who will be asking the company that you have not met your target, but nothing more than that, right? I think um, the if, if they 
if they miss the target, um, then they won't be able to claim that it's a, a, a science-based target. Um, so I think I, I think they could be basically removed from, from using the label. Uh, but you're right; it's it's mostly um, <laughs> it's mostly I guess kind of up to to uh, you know the market to to hold to um, to drive accountability. Yeah, sure. Thank you. Thanks, Priyanka. Uh, thank you, Priyanka. Uh, I think I had a couple of questions for you. Uh, I think off late, uh, I think last week what we have seen is uh, Europe talking about gas and nuclear being classified as green. Uh, so uh, two questions over here. Why is the sudden change in heart? Uh, is it like uh, Europe now understands that transition is more important and there is no silver bullet? Uh, that's one. And secondly, if this transition had to happen, uh, how do you see is uh, Asia's positioning, and uh, would it have any bearing on uh, how rating agencies or how probably you would evaluate uh, looking at the companies? Yeah, good, good question. I think there's probably a few a few aspects to why it's happening now. Um, I, I was worried that we were running out of time, so I didn't talk too much about the taxonomy, but. Um, the EU taxonomy gets a lot of focus, but there are actually many different taxonomies that are being developed across Asia. So, which is it, it, which is honestly quite problematic because uh, we we need kind of a common approach. You know, trying to respond to a different taxonomy in every country would just be impossible. Um, but you know, the European taxonomy is very binary. It's been very kind of green or not green, in or out, um, and because of that, other taxonomies, you know, so Japan is developing a transition taxonomy, um, Singapore has a traffic light system, which is, uh, you know, includes kind of, you know, red, green, and yellow, and, and yellow is kind of activities that are not necessarily green, but, you know, maybe kind of on the path to getting there, so it kind of includes a transition concept. Um, so... The, I think the EU recognizes that it's kind of missed the the concept of transition and, and is is you know thinking about how to incorporate that partly because you know other um, you know taxonomies are, are developing around that um, so I think that's part of it I think part of it's political so uh, France is taking over you know more of a leadership role in some of these particular organizations in, in the EU. France relies very heavily on nuclear power, um, and so, you know, they they have kind of always been pushing for it. Maybe they have more leverage to do so in this new, new kind of leadership capacity. Um, and uh, so, so I think, I think there's a few, you know, a few aspects of why, why it's happening now. I think regardless, you know, it's a question that needs to be addressed. Um, you know, we can't, I think there's recognition generally that we can't only focus on green assets. We need to also think about how do we transition the existing infrastructure, um, or, or, you know, say, call it existing brown assets. Um, in terms of how Asia is positioned, I think this concept of transition is, is incredibly important to Asia. So, uh, 
you know, most of the, I, I guess, Europe tends to run on, on gas, um, whereas Asia is, is much more, uh, call it, fueled by, by um, coal. It just generally, Asian countries generally don't have as many gas assets. Um, and so I think, uh, you know, that's where either of these concepts can come in. So if gas replaces coal, then that's you know, incrementally a lot better. It's not green. It's not going to get us to net zero. But, um, you know, it's, it's an improvement. Uh, and so, you know, in Asia where there's maybe not as much gas available, maybe nuclear could step in to, to provide some of that base load energy. Um, likewise, gas gas plants, my understanding is that gas plants can relatively easily be retrofit to run on hydrogen or a blend of hydrogen. Um, and so, you know, that's another, that could be another way that assets move, you know, towards net zero. So maybe it's replacing a coal plant with a gas plant and then eventually transitioning that gas plant to, to running on hydrogen. Um, and so, you know, I guess the other, the, the final point that I would make is um, nuclear power, the technology is really at a, um, a much different point than it, it was in the past. So, you know, things like thorium technology, which don't have the same ability to be, to be turned into a weapon and maybe have less waste, could even be... Uh, you know, the process of enriching thorium could even be used to, you know, help eliminate existing uranium um, waste. So, so things like that, um, you know, I think show a lot of promise and the, the safety of the latest generation uh, nuclear, which China is also spending a lot of time working on, um, you know, I think could, could show a lot of promise and could meet, you know, a lot of the demands for for baseload power. So I would say that's kind of outside of consensus, but um, there's probably a lot of potential there. Uh, that's, that's quite useful. Uh, Eric, probably I'll just try to squeeze one more question uh, before we close. I'll request the participants if you have any questions, please do raise your hand. Uh, Eric, you did touch upon hydrogen and you used the word uh, cost parity. Despite hydrogen being expensive, uh, you did indicate that corporations or probably countries are willing to look at it. Uh, are there any examples over here? And uh, secondly, uh, how do you see the CCUS uh, specifically in the Indian context? Is it still uh, are there are there any live projects on scale which actually demonstrate the economic credit as something which is uh, possible to execute uh, for the Indian subcontinent? So, um, I. I I think I'll, I'll take those, those separately. So when I, when I, you know, hydrogen is, is produced and used, you know, economically today, it just tends to be made, you know, from, from fossil fuels as part of the, the chemical process. So when I talk about parity, um, I'm talking about, about uh, green hydrogen, so, so really producing hydrogen from renewable electricity. Um, and so the... What's often kind of talked about as the uh, the inflection point for that is three dollars um, uh, three dollar hydrogen. So right now, green hydrogen is in the range of maybe 
four to to eight dollars, um, and you know usually hydrogen produced using natural gas is is uh, I don't know call it you know, call it like one to three dollars. Um, so I think some of the the lowest cost green hydrogen projects are already in India. Um, I think you know talk to some companies that say that there are. Uh, projects that are getting close to that $3, you know, kind of break even. Um, the, it, it, you know, and, and then there's there's estimates, you know, a number of other, you know, kind of companies and organizations are producing estimates for when they could get to $3 or when they could get to, um, you know, $2 or $1. Um, and that's generally expected in, in the next kind of five, five to ten years. Um, the in terms of other examples, uh, as, as I mentioned briefly, both Korea and Japan are embracing hydrogen technology. Um, Australia, not so much at the government level, but on um, a corporate level, is you know similar to the potential in India, looking at the wind and solar, which is abundantly available in Northwest Australia, and if they could turn that into a green manufacturing hub for export. Um, so they're definitely, definitely examples. Um, but, you know, I think, I think you probably uh, track examples, you know, maybe more closely than I do. Um, but um, on CCUS, uh, the reality is most of the projects have um, over-promised and under-delivered. It's still a very expensive technology if we think about kind of post-combustion capture. Um, and so I think in the Indian context, the big picture, the opportunity is probably more to move straight to renewables and to avoid building the infrastructure that's ever needed to apply carbon capture or, you know, unwind it or, um, and so, uh, you know, I, I think uh, it's kind of increasingly clear that when it's available or when it's an option, you know, renewables and storage will be economically better than uh, fossil fuel and, and carbon capture. Um, and so, you know, that's at least with the technologies that we know about today. Um, and so, you know, we do a much more deeper dive on the Indian context for that in a piece that we just published with the Asia Investor Group on Climate Change. Um, and so if you just Google AIGC and AIGCC and carbon capture, we've tried to really pin down what those exact economics are um, in, in India specifically. So um, if there's any interest, that's a good that, – that report is a good resource. That's very useful and insightful. Uh, Eric, uh, on behalf of Investec, I'd like to thank you for your time. Uh, it was very, very insightful uh, taking up most of the uh, critical aspects around policy, finance, and disclosure. And uh, it, was, it was a good Q&A session as well. I'll thank all the participants also uh, for joining on for this session. Uh, thank you so much, Eric. And if there are any queries from the clients, I'll definitely pass it on to you. Uh, thank you so much, everyone, for joining this session. Thank you. Thanks, Ritesh. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. And I look forward to your joining for the next session.
Thank you, Eric. Thanks for that. Talk to you soon. Yes, thanks.